Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Chelsea Soblick. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. My hope for this podcast is that these conversations would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public square. This week on Capital Conversations is part two of my conversation with Ambassador John Cotton Richmond. We are finishing our discussion on trafficking, forced labor, God's call and movement on Mr. Richmond's life to care for the most vulnerable, and how we as Christians can get involved in caring for victims of sexual abuse, caring for people who have been subjected to forced labor, how we can uh, see our vocation as kingdom ministry. If you missed last week's episode, please go back and listen to part one. And um, thank you so much for being here for part two of this really important conversation. Ambassador uh, John Cotton Richmond was unanimously confirmed uh, by the U.S. Senate and served as the U.S. Ambassador to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons from 2018 to 2021. Serving in the nation's highest-ranking position dedicated to human trafficking, John led the U.S. foreign policy related to modern-day slavery and coordinated the U.S. government's response to the crime. Mr. Richmond, you just spoke to the importance of sexual abuse uh, survivors not only being at the table, but also having a voice to speak into changes. But how can the church be caring well for sexual abuse survivors? You might be aware that the Southern Baptist Convention has over the past few years been going through um, and acknowledging uh, sexual abuse in the church. And uh, the ERLC actually a few years ago led what we called the Caring Well Initiative for Survivors. But I want to ask you, um, how can the church and um, the Christian community step up and care well for sexual abuse survivors? I think this is a big issue. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of reasonable criticism of the way communities of faith have talked about sexual abuse. I think the most important thing is to acknowledge it, Mm -hmm. to just let the pressure out by saying, this is real, we know this has happened. We know that every congregation, there are people sitting in those pews who have suffered sexual violence. We know that there are people sitting in those pews that have perpetrated sexual violence. And we know that sometimes they're sitting next to each other. And I think we need room to discuss this reality. And not just have a program where, like, we have a support group in the dark corner of the church on a Wednesday night where, in a sense, just by going, you are labeled. But to have conversations about how do we deal with this? Could there be sermons? Could there be discussions in church about about sexuality and God's plan for it and how man has perverted that, has actually taken that and used it to harm people, and how we can restore people who have been abused and make sure that they don't feel like they are defined by the worst things that they have experienced and that they're not defined by the worst things that they've done. Mm. Instead, if they're people of faith, they're defined by their creator, and his love for them isn't dependent on their performance. And so there can be grace, there can be honesty, there can be accountability, Um, But we have to acknowledge it. So I have spent 
a lot of my uh, career working on child welfare in some capacity, in a professional capacity, a personal capacity. And I know firsthand how important being trauma-informed and having trauma-informed resources is in that field. And I know it is in this as well. Can you speak to why it's important that we understand the brain science and the impacts that trauma has on a person? It's critically important. Um, And I'm so grateful that you've done that work uh, for so long. Victims who suffer trauma do experience something that is significant. When that happens, they respond in sometimes predictable ways and sometimes unpredictable ways. Understanding trauma helps us view victims' current behavior through a lens of humility, right, where we say, we're going to give a little grace here. Maybe they're acting out in this way because of something they've experienced in the past. But I would also say that a little bit of trauma education may be worse than no trauma education. Like, what we need is to understand that not just, like, all survivors of sex trafficking will behave this way. It's so individualized. Every victim is different. In fact, victims of the same trafficker experiencing almost identical trauma might respond quite Mm. differently to it and respond differently at different seasons of their life and their recovery. And I think we have to look at people as individuals, not as populations. Traffickers don't traffic populations. They traffic people. And we need to look at the individual person and make sure that we're building a trauma-informed care plan for each person. We're not shoehorning victims into our pre-prescribed programs of care and relief. We're designing something uniquely for them because they're different. I tell you what, everyone that's got more than one kid knows that the parenting strategy that worked for one kid may not very well work for the next kid. And the same concept is true for survivors. And I think we need to think about it as individuals. And having a trauma lens can be really helpful. I really appreciate that you you said that because God made each one of us different. So, of course, we would respond differently at different times in different ways to different things. So, I really appreciated that you parsed that out a little bit. So, since leaving the administration, um, your current work is focused on the intersection between business and human rights, and you help companies try to keep their supply chains um, free from being tainted with slave labor, forced labor. Can you speak to what that work looks like? Absolutely. You know, one of the most interesting things that's happened in the legal landscape around trafficking is it happening in real time right now, which is we're seeing a burden shifting from government to business to deal with human rights abuses, including trafficking in the supply chain. We've had several laws over the last few years that have focused on disclosures, like saying companies need to disclose what, if anything, they're doing to make sure there's not forced labor in their supply chains. And if you guys go to the bottom of any store that is large, you'll see at the bottom, it'll say a modern slavery statement or a transparency disclosure statement, and you can read about what they're doing. Now, we've got a brand new law that Germany just passed this summer, and the EU is poised to pass a similar law that doesn't say just disclose what you're doing. It mandates that companies have to map their supply chains and that companies are going to be responsible for what their suppliers' human rights abuses might be. That's a big shift. It's going to take effect. um, The German law is going to take effect on January 1st, 2023. So we've got a few months left to kind of begin to think through how this is going to apply. But I think it's really important for businesses to get ahead of this to make sure that they've got the right programs in place. And I think there's great power in this. 
Think about the power of procurement. Mm. If we can push down through the procurement channels, through supply chains, and improve the lives of workers, we can do a lot to eliminate human trafficking. The other thing is I, don't, I think most people don't want to buy clothes or toys or anything else that was made by victims of trafficking. I think they, they want to do the right thing, but we don't know as consumers. When I go buy a soccer ball for my son, I want to buy the cheapest soccer ball because I think he's going to lose it, right? <laughs> and I'm going to have to buy another one. I'm not thinking about who sewed this the soccer ball together. Yeah. I, I, how do I know that as a consumer? Mm-hmm. But we can make sure companies figure it out and companies can make sure that their supply chains are clean. And that's now becoming a mandate on them. We're seeing investor pressure on companies. The SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, is about to put disclosure requirements on companies that are publicly traded. We're seeing investors asked to be a part of ESG funds, environment, sustainability, and governance funds, where companies are sourcing sustainably and thoughtfully. And I think this fits in well with the idea that we want to have fair weights and measures, right? We want to do business fairly. And uh, when forced labor is involved, it's inherently unfair. So I I have a follow-up question to that. I have heard, um, so we at the ERLC have done quite a bit of work. I mentioned earlier the the China countering the Chinese Communist Party on their genocide of the Uyghur people. And one of the huge issues in that is the issue of forced labor. And I've heard certain companies say, well, we truly can't trace our supply chains to be 100% sure that they are not tainted, essentially. So so what would you say to those companies who are trying to punt the ball and say, well, we, we've done our best, but we can't truly know 100%? You know, it's hard to know anything 100%. I have some sympathy for companies' frustration mm-hmm. with the inability, particularly in Xinjiang, China, where the government of China won't let them have access to go so do holiday, inspections. Yeah, you know, right now we have a law in the United States that says you cannot import goods into the United States that are made in whole or part by forced labor. Uh, we've had several designations of cotton from Xinjiang, tomatoes from Xinjiang region, as well as silica, which is an ingredient in solar panels from Hushine, which is a, one of the main companies in Xinjiang. It's important for us to live up to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is something that's got real bipartisan support as well. You know, when Secretary Pompeo was Secretary of State, he declared what was happening in China to be a genocide. That's a big legal term, and that yes. determination mattered. A few weeks later, Secretary Blinken also declared it to be a genocide. We've got broad bipartisan support, and it's not just the lack of religious freedom, although those are terrible. It's not just the forced sterilization of Uyghurs, which is also terrible, but it does include forced labor of the Uyghur people and others within China. And I think that the United States has good reason to be concerned about China's malign influence. So how, uh, to drill down a little bit more, how do we balance the benefits of free trade and capitalism with rightful efforts to ensure that supply chains aren't tainted with forced labor? You know, I don't think it's about balancing. Mm. You know, free trade and capitalism are responsible for so much prosperity around the world. Forced labor doesn't need to be balanced. It's not something that we need to fiddle with. It's antithetical to capitalism because people should be free to start businesses. They should be free to choose where they work. And if they don't like their job, they should be free to quit their job and compete in the marketplace for a better job. That's what free markets look like. 
Traffickers interfere, whether they're companies or individuals. They prevent people from quitting and competing to go work elsewhere. And that's a threat to our economic order. People have to be free to alienate their own labor. And forced labor is anti-competitive. You know, if someone is producing product using forced labor and not paying market wages, and they're selling that product for less than the company that is paying their laborers a market wage, they have an unfair advantage in the marketplace. This is a crime. We're not trying to figure out where do we curb the excesses of capitalism, which may be a fine conversation to have, and policy wonks can kind of engage in that. But trafficking isn't about balancing it. Trafficking has to be stopped so that business, so that free markets can operate effectively. So many of us might not have ever knowingly interacted with a trafficking victim or a forced labor survivor. How can we increase our awareness on these issues? Getting educated, learning as much as you can about these issues really matters. Mm -hmm. Paying attention to what's going on in your individual community, listening to what law enforcement is saying about trafficking, listening to what the NGOs, the nonprofits that are caring for people— All of these things can help us raise awareness and figure out what to be on the lookout for, what the indicators of trafficking might be, and then be willing to step in. There was an amazing case in California years ago that ended up with a really rich appellate decision from the Ninth Circuit. But what I loved about the case was not just the law it generated, but the way it came about. Mm. And the case involved a woman that was forced to work as a domestic worker. And one day, a mom was dropping off their kid at elementary school and noticed that the domestic worker was also dropping off a child and wouldn't talk. Over time, she began to talk to the gardener, to the landscaper who was at the elementary school working, and they started to pay attention to this woman that was coming each day. They eventually brought the custodian into the conversation. And so this this young mom, a gardener, and the school custodian figured out that something wasn't right. None of them had gotten a master's degree in criminal justice. None of them had attended an international seminar on on forced labor. But they knew that this girl was in trouble. Mm -hmm. And they contacted the police. She was ultimately liberated from that circumstance and now has got services and care. So I think anybody can help. Mm. So, so for those listeners who want to take that next step and get involved and help, what are some next steps and practical things they can be doing to get involved? So many things. I would start with learning what organizations are close by mm-hmm. and consider how could you support them. You could learn also what organizations are operating internationally. Read about their finances, read about their theory of change, their strategy. Which ones shimmer for you? Like, which, where, where do you see, like, I can engage with that? I like their approach. And you can support them financially. I think we could also call on people to become amazing professionals, to really become excellent at what they do. What if we encouraged kids in youth groups and kids in schools to grow up and become FBI agents as a way to live their vocation out? What if they could become coders? We need great super smart coders, because we've got to figure out where all these live streaming videos are originating and where they're headed and how can we identify them and stop them. We need folks who could be accountants, really thoughtful forensic accountants to help us follow the money. We need not just people that care to provide counsel. We need trauma-informed, trained psychiatrists and psychologists that can actually help people through complicated, layered trauma. So they could be, we could call people to become excellent at their profession 
And if there's an opportunity that arises to work with the issue of trafficking, they'll be prepared. But I think we need to call each other to excellence. Mm. We could also remind people to not buy commercial sex. We know there's a huge overlap between sex trafficking and the sale of commercial sex, and anyone purchasing a significant amount of commercial sex will ultimately purchase a trafficking victim and be that person's worst nightmare for that day. We can ask companies. We can write letters. We can ask them about their supply chains, uh, where they're sourcing product and material and what they're doing. They pay attention to that. They pay attention to the questions they get. And since your audience seems to be predominantly people of faith, I think it is important that folks who pray, pray, that we talk to God about uh, this issue and ask him to send laborers to go and do the work. Such a good answer. And I love that you called people to excellence because so often when you're looking at an enormous problem like trafficking, you know, efforts can feel like a drop in the bucket. Um, it really can, but I, I appreciate that call to excellence. And I, I think it's important for folks not to think about the scope of the problem being so big that it feels overwhelming. Mm. You could almost end up with awareness fatigue, mm -hmm. right? You've made me aware of this problem, but now what do I do with yeah, that exactly. awareness? Like yeah. I have to pick up the dry cleaning, <laughs> yes. and get the kids and make dinner, right? Like what do I, what do, I do with all of that heaviness? And I think it's important for folks to remember that the problem isn't just enormous and critical to deal with. Uh, there's a sense of urgency, but there's also a sense of doability. Mm. We can actually do something about this because we can stop the human adversary, the trafficker. We are not um, powerless against trafficking. Trafficking is not a naturally occurring phenomenon in the world. You know, it is a caused action. So think about this. If you have a drought, you know, water vapor is not conspiring with other water vapors about where to fall and where not to fall and then obscure the effects of crop failure. But in trafficking, we actually do have traffickers that are conspiring with each other about who to go target and how to prevent people of goodwill from coming and rendering aid. And so there's hope in the sense that we can stop the traffickers who are committing this crime, and then we can all together work to reduce the vulnerabilities that people deal with. It's mm, a good answer. And that's such a good point that, you know, it's very different than a hurricane or, or things like that. So as we are wrapping up, I want to ask you a bit more of a personal question to steal of a phrase from one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson. How have you sustained this work a long obedience in the same direction over a long time. I know I can't even imagine what you've seen and experienced in your career and all the hard things. How have you sustained your your justice work for the long term? I have to tell you, I do love the Peterson's book, The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. You know, the honest answer is I've seen lots of people enter and leave this field. Mm -hmm. um, people call it burnout. People call it secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. Lots of different terms are used to explain it, but it's not uncommon. I can tell you that I'm not sure I've always handled it well. You know, it's something that I think in some seasons our family has done better dealing with some of the things we've seen, and in other seasons perhaps not. But I have come to find a few things that make it sustainable. One is just remembering that I'm not that important, mm. that I'm not the center of this story, that Everything doesn't depend upon me. I think a lot of people get to an unhealthy place where they think they can't take a day off because something bad is happening to someone somewhere in the world. 
and they think they care the most. Sometimes we call this the savior complex. Mm -hmm. That's really unhealthy. And I think that's why the scriptures constantly remind us that we are a mist, that we are a vapor, that we're a phantom, a potsherd, right? We are temporary. This important work we get to participate in, but it doesn't all depend on us. And so one of the things is just to constantly remind myself that I'm just not that important in this work. But I get to participate, and I want to be excellent while I do it, but I want to believe that there's lots of other people who are also working on it, and it all doesn't depend on me. Another thing is community, is to have people that you, we can talk to. And you know, for me, a lot of times, it's my wife. We get to, we've lived out this vocation together in many ways as we've traveled the world, but there's also friends, um, people who can empathize people who can walk with us, but people who can also nudge us or steer us or call us out if for some reason we're moving in a direction that might not be healthy. But the thing that I look to most often is the resiliency of survivors. Mm. It's helpful to know so many survivors that are doing great. Um, not all survivors are doing great, and not all survivors that are doing great will continue to do great all the time, but it's a little bit different when you can see someone in acute trauma in the crisis moment and know that that's not their future. Their future is going to be so much better than that, whether they can see it in that moment or not. We can remind ourselves that the victim we meet today is going to have a chance to be living like the victim we met four years ago. It's the difference between kind of what an emergency room feels like mm -hmm. and what a primary care physician feels like. You know, when you're in the emergency room, it's sew them up, fix the brakes, do the surgery. It's crisis. But after the emergency room, there's recuperation, there's healing, there's long-term health, there's thoughtful nutrition. There's all sorts of things that can be done to sustain health. And I think it's important for us to remember that we want to be calling people not to where they are, but to who they're becoming. And if we can call people to who they're becoming, we're going to see them the way that God sees them. Well, Mr. Richmond, thank you so much um, for your time, for letting me ask you um, so many questions and um, for your work. Um, I know you've helped um, not only shape laws and help other countries, but helped victims. So thank you so much for your time today um, and for your work. Glad to be with you. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review to help others find the show. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes and at erlc.com. And in addition to listening to Capital Conversations, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and culture. The ERLC podcast is our flagship show and airs every Friday. Lindsay and Brent give a rundown of what the ERLC has been working on that week, including updates on our work in Washington, D.C. Search for The Digital Public Square and the ERLC podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next time. 